1: Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are David Crowe, our banking editor, Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent, and our guest this week from the Financial Conduct Authority is Enforcement Director Mark Stewart. Joining us down the line from Hong Kong is James King. This week, we will take a look at the UK's first insider trading case in several years. A catch-up on HSBC and why Huawei, the Chinese telecoms company, blames it for landing it in legal trouble. And finally, Credit Suisse and why it's taking the UK tax authorities to court. First, though, to that story about insider trading. And this is a case, Caroline, that's been brought and won by the Financial Conduct Authority against a UBS member of staff and a friend.
2: Yeah, that's right. So there was a retrial, in fact, of a former UBS compliance officer and her day trader friend that ended last week. The first trial that was in late 2018 resulted in a hung jury. So everything had to be re-argued in front of a new jury beginning from Easter time this year. So the jury convicted Fabiana Malik who used to work at UBS's compliance department, and also Walid Shuker, who was her day trader friend. They knew each other through their mothers. They both came from London. And they've both received a three-year jail sentence. So the allegations were basically that Fabiana, through her role at UBS, accessed price sensitive information on deals UBS was working on at the time and then would pass them secretly to shoe care using burner phones with multiple SIM cards that kind of thing and then care would trade successfully using contracts for difference on the trades ahead of any announcement or newspaper article or something like that and ended up netting over one million pounds in profit.
1: One of the interesting I suppose it doesn't really matter from a bank point of view, but certainly from a personal point of view, that one of the interesting wrinkles here seems to be that Mr. Shuker made all the money and it doesn't seem to have obviously shared it with his partner in crime.
2: Yeah, that's right. The prosecution, which was the Financial Conduct Authority in this case, never alleged that Fabiana made any money at all from passing inside information to Shuker. What did happen was that Shouker would take her to Tramp, which is this rather infamous private members club in London, where you can often see celebrities hanging out and that kind of thing. And in sentencing, Judge Joanna Corner, who presided over the trial, said to Fabiana, it is clear that you took every opportunity to enjoy entry into the rather loose lifestyle that was being led by Shouker. But Fabiana hardly ever drank. So all these magnums of champagne that Shouker was buying, she never really partook in. So the question does remain Maine, why exactly would she risk her job, her reputation, and indeed her liberty just to be taken to Trump now and again?
1: Absolutely. I suppose the broader question is, what does this signal in terms of insider trading cases? From what we hear, regulators are pursuing this type of crime more assiduously than ever. Does that mean we're going to see a flood of cases coming to trial?
2: Well, Mark Stewart, who we'll be talking to in this podcast, who's the head of the FCA's enforcement division, has long promised a crackdown on insider trading. It was never something that the FCA or its predecessor agency, the Financial Services Authority, had ever prosecuted before 2008. And then since the financial crisis and the general demand for accountability in the city, there was a pickup and the FCA did start prosecuting people for insider trading. That kind of tailed off in 2016, which was the last big insider jury case that we saw of true city insiders that preceded the Shuker and Abdul-Malik case. And although the FCA has a near record amount of open investigations into alleged insider trading on its books, apart from the Abdul-Malik and Shuker trial, we haven't seen any other cases result in charges, let alone progress to a jury trial. Now, the issue with that is that in the same intervening period, what we've seen is that the amount of suspicious trades that happen in the UK preceding an announcement of a takeover or another market-moving bit of information has actually increased to its highest since 2010. And some see a correlation there, that the lack of enforcement, high-profile jury trials, for instance, against alleged insider traders is actually giving leeway to would-be market abusers to run riot.
1: Giving them comfort that they can act with impunity. Well, as you said, we are now joined by Mark Stewart from the FCA, the head of enforcement there. So, Mark, thank you very much for joining us. This is a fascinating case and obviously quite an unusual one and a colourful one in some ways. How did you stumble upon it?
3: In a sense, it started with Mr. Shokir, who was the friend of Zabdil Malik, and he really identified himself in a way because he was such a successful trader in his own right, almost too lucky for chance or research to be responsible for the sort of success that he was enjoying. So, you know, we routinely look at the information that we are able to gather from the market, from transaction reports, from the the order records that we ingest into our system. And we're looking for all sorts of different kinds of outlying pieces of information that might cause us to ask more questions. And someone who is individually enormously successful and earning significant profits from trading that is beyond what we typically see uh, does tend to stand out. And Mr. Shokir did stand out in that respect.
1: Put this in the broader context of insider trading, if you like. I remember you know, when I first started reporting about financial services and the City of London and so on. Insider trading back in the 80s, I suppose, was almost kind of part and parcel of working in the city, wasn't it? I mean, maybe that's a slightly cynical journalistic view. <laughs> but it's obviously a very different thing these days. How has the regulatory approach to detecting it changed? Are you better at finding it these days?
3: I think detection is the key for all financial misconduct, including insider dealing. And we've seen a sea change in relation to insider dealing in particular. I think back in the 80s, the notion of insider dealing was dealing by people who were truly inside corporate insiders and it was not seen as particularly heinous. Now, I think it's clearly viewed as abusive and fundamentally dishonest and cheating the rest of the market, and that has to be absolutely right. The way in which we detect insider dealing and market abuse more generally, and I can put it in that broader context, has also undergone a huge sea change. So our surveillance systems now are able to ingest vast quantities of data and information from the suspicious transaction reports that the market itself generates and gives to us, all the other transaction data that we collect, as well as now all the order data, and we can now cross-reference that across all the different markets that we regulate, and we can run algorithms that enable us to look for particular patterns of conduct or particular types of misconduct that we're very interested in trying to spot. We can look at particular traders, we can look at particular trading by firms, we can aggregate that information, and we can then use that to ask more questions of the market itself, which is a kind of placing the market under a spotlight so that we can see what's actually going on in a way that you couldn't do 20, 30 years ago. So the ability that we now have to not only see what's happening in the market, that diagnose what's happening in the market, has developed exponentially over the last few years.
1: What about other strategies? The Serious Fraud Office Director, Lisa Rossofsky, has spoken of the need for US-style tactics, hasn't she, for wiretaps and plea bargains and so on. Do you agree with her? Um,
3: I think we can be enormously successful in making the most of what we can currently do right now I'm not sure we need to rush to US-style tactics across the board. By the same token, I don't think we should be naive because we're seeing organized insider dealing that is happening across borders by individuals who are able to trade in London, trade in New York, trade in Hong Kong, but they might be located in Switzerland or Monaco or Singapore. And then the money is banked in a completely different jurisdiction as well. So we're seeing enormously sophisticated types of trading schemes being established that probably need the authorities like us to continue to innovate the activities and tactics that we use to detect and fight against it. So what I'm saying I think is I'd be cautious to say that, you know, there's a particular answer going down a particular path that is pursued in America. But at the same time, we need to be innovating the the sorts of tactics that we use all the time to keep on top of what we need to keep on top of.
1: Quite. Finally, if you could put this in the broader context of your overall strategy, because I think when you came into the job, you made it clear that you wanted to make going after insider trading a priority. And I think I'm right in saying that the last report that you issued on numbers said that you had 75 open investigations, which may be close to a record number. I know you can't talk about individual cases that are ongoing, but can you talk about that broad strategic goal?
3: Well, firstly, I don't think I picked insider dealing out in particular. Of course, insider dealing, like all other types of financial misconduct, has to be a priority for the FCA, and it is. Secondly, it depends on how you count the numbers. We have round about two or three dozen particular investigations dealing with insider dealing that might have multiple targets and the number might add up to 75. It might be a different number. It varies from week to week. The process of investigating is part of what I call street lighting for the market. The idea that sunlight is the best disinfectant, but electric light is the most efficient policeman, I think is enormously true. And the tactics we use are about street lighting the market so that we make the incidence of financial misconduct less rather than more, the chances of detection greater rather than less, because experience shows that if people are tempted to do the wrong thing, but they fear the risk of detection is increasing and getting higher, they're less likely to do it in the first place. So having extremely efficient systems that can ingest what's actually happening in the market, having enormously inquisitive ways of interrogating what's going on in the market as well, and that's what investigations are all about, And then being able to spot the egregious insider dealing like the one in this case and prosecute it really well and get the right outcome overall deters misconduct and makes our markets work well and makes them safe places for people to operate in. And that's the strategy and that's what we're doing.
1: Let's hope it works. Thank you very much, Mark Stewart. Thanks, Patrick. Let's move on to our second story now and a look at HSBC and the issues it's had with Huawei, the Chinese telecoms group. David, you and James King, who we'll speak to in a moment, were reporting recently about HSBCs having been blamed, really, for the deepening issues around Huawei and its access into global markets, in particular the arrest of the Chinese telecoms group's chief financial officer several months ago. Why would the bank be blamed for that?
4: So at the end of last year, Kathy Meng, the chief financial officer of Huawei, was arrested in Canada and subsequently indicted on several charges of bank and wire fraud in an indictment that also alleges that Huawei breached US sanctions against Iran. Now, the reason HSBC has been dragged into this is that it provided much of the evidence that helped US prosecutors build the case against Kathy Meng and against Huawei. And Huawei, we understand, is furious that HSBC turned over all of this information to US prosecutors, and that HSBC, if you like, is on a sort of counter-lobbying effort to try to convince Chinese officialdom that it is not to blame, that it's not its fault, that it's a sort of unwilling participant in all of this.
1: And of course, it was caught in the middle, partly because of its historical transgressions itself, that it had been under special supervision by the US authorities over, for example, breaching sanctions.
4: Yeah. So in 2012, HSBC agreed a deferred prosecution agreement related to a myriad of transgressions, including breaching sanctions in places including Iran, and also helping Mexican drug cartels launder money. Now, one of the conditions of that deferred prosecution agreement was that HSBC operated under the supervision of a federally appointed monitor, a company called Exeger, that was basically operating as a sort of cell within the bank from 2012 to 2017 and had access to everything. So when the DOJ came knocking and said, hi, HSBC, we would like to do a piece of work on Huawei and its business dealings in Iran and so on, HSBC had no option but to hand over everything and anything that the DOJ asked for.
1: Let me bring James King in now. James, thanks very much for joining us from Hong Kong. How do you see this? You spoke recently to the chief executive of Huawei. Is David's characterization of how the company feels about HSBC correct? Are they furious about, as a client, having been let down by their bank on this matter?
5: Yes, I mean, it's difficult to gauge the strength of feeling, but certainly they are exercised about this. And Ren Zhengfei, the chief executive and founder of Huawei, also challenged the U.S. prosecutors' characterization of HSBC as a victim institution. Mr. Ren told us that HSBC had known from the beginning that a Huawei affiliate called Skycom had business interests in Iran and that the bank understood Skycom's relationship with Huawei. And Mr. Ren went on to say that this can be proven by emails between the bank and Huawei, which have the bank's logo on them. From a legal perspective, he said HSBC can't claim they were deceived or knew nothing because, he said, we have the evidence. So in response to this, a spokesman for HSBC said, that the bank was not a party to this case, so it's not appropriate for them to comment. So, you know, there's a lot of different feelings around this case, but it certainly is the feeling in Huawei that HSBC
1: knew what was happening with regard to Skycom and its business in Iran. This is a fascinating microcosm of a story because it's also part of a broader issue, isn't it? Of course... You're in Hong Kong experiencing a very striking backlash from protesters there over China's attempt to have more control over Hong Kong. And of course, the broader story with Huawei in particular relating to relations with the US and indeed the West more generally is also part of this. Is that fair to see this whole story in that context of China's and Hong Kong's relations with the West?
5: That's kind of a tough one because... I mean, what's playing out on the streets right now in Hong Kong is a question of Hong Kong people objecting to mainland China's attempts to get an extradition law passed here in Hong Kong, meaning effectively that the mainland would be able to extradite people that it felt had committed some kind of an offence. So I suppose, you know, loosely, this might play into the broader rivalry,
1: but it is a little bit of a stretch, I think, to relate this case to the demonstrations on the streets. Let me bring David in for a final thought.
4: I mean, I think this is a litmus test of whether a company like HSBC, headquartered in the UK, founded in Hong Kong and generating 75% of its profits in Hong Kong and China and effectively betting its future on expansion in mainland China, and also a big US dollar clearing bank. Whether this kind of global behemoth that was really built and the strategy sort of built around this idea of China opening up of ever greater globalization, whether HSBC can really navigate what are clearly very different times. And although the protests in Hong Kong are not sort of, you know, in any way linked to this particular case. They do speak to the fact that Hong Kong is becoming China-fied and, you know, Beijing is asserting its influence over that territory. And it puts a company like HSBC in a very tricky spot.
1: We will see how they cope with it. Thank you, David and James. And apologies for the quality of that Hong Kong phone line. Let's move on to our final story and a quick look at Credit Suisse as it goes to court to sue the UK HMRC for paid taxes or taxes that it believes it shouldn't have had to pay. This is a delicate area for Credit Suisse or for any bank or any company to go into battle over, isn't it? Yeah, Credit Suisse takes the tax man to court. And not over anything, just over banker's bonuses particularly.
4: Banker's bonuses. So these are taxes that Credit Suisse paid during the depths of the financial crisis when Alastair Darling, the then Labour Chancellor, introduced, I suppose, what amounts to almost an emergency four-month tax on bankers' bonuses that ran from the end of 2009 through the first four months of 2010. And this tax raised an awful lot of money. It hadn't been intended to. The idea was to stop the banks from paying bonuses. The Labour government were fed up with all of these headlines about how fat cat city pay was continuing unabated. And so Alistair Darling had hoped that this tax would change behaviour. It did not. The banks paid the bonuses anyway and the exchequer raised close to £5 billion. So
1: what case does Credit Suisse have, given that they knew this tax was in place, they chose to pay the bonuses anyway, how can they claim they were unfairly taxed? So, what
4: Credit Suisse is arguing, and it is a little tough to follow, but anyway, they're saying that some banks had years that were not calendar years. Banks like Nomura, Rothschild, Royal Bank of Canada did not have proper calendar years and so therefore paid their bonuses out with the four month window when this tax was levied. And so Credit Suisse argue because those banks didn't have to pay this bonus tax, they effectively received a version of state aid, which is in contravention of European Union rules. And it's a strange legal theory. Whether it succeeds or not, the optics of this are very strange. This is £239 million that Credit Suisse paid long ago and quite why it's willing to risk bad headlines for this now. It's not quite clear to me. And they're kind of damned if they win and damned if they don't. If they win, there is going to be an almighty political backlash about how this money which was spent on public services and so on during the depths of the last crisis is now being sort of clawed back. And if they lose, I think people are going to ask why on earth they wasted time, money and sort of engaged in reputational risk when they lost the case.
1: It sounds like quite a lot of money, 239 million pounds, I suppose. But in the scheme of things, I'm not sure shareholders will even notice. So certainly the reputational damage, as you say, is probably the biggest risk. That's all for this week. Thank you to David and Caroline here in the studio, to our guest Mark Stewart from the FCA and to James King, who joined us from Hong Kong. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye.
0: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the US, Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.